0: Esteemed audience and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy, which was available for pre-order now and will be released on May 15th of 2020. If you can't wait that long, good news, there are two other Banneker Bones books already waiting for you. Uh, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People is the second, and the first, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, uh, is available as a paperback, an audiobook, narrated by the exquisite uh, David Radke, and the e-book is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this. Wherever fine ebooks are sold, if you listen to the show on a regular basis, it has to have occurred to you by now. Can this guy actually write? I listened to him talk about writing a lot, but can he actually do it? Find out free of charge. Download your copy of Manicure Bones and the Giant Robot Bees uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some stories for older readers, such as the young adult novel All Together Now, a zombie story, uh, and uh, Pete, I'm sorry, pizza delivery, but uh, the Book of David, a five. Volume serial horror novel under the name Robert Kent. Uh, if you're curious about that, it's me doing my best Stephen King impersonation. Um, so it's about a atheist that purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him visions of flying saucers. It is nutty stuff. If you're curious about that, you can get the book of David, chapter one, the first of five, uh, for free as an ebook. You can download that while you're downloading your copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Make a week of it, you'll have a good time. Uh, as always, for more information about what's going on with the show, what's going on with me, as well as to read interviews with hundreds of authors, literary agents, editors, publishing professionals, folks you'd be interested in, check out middlegradeninja.com. Uh, you can lose a couple of weeks just going through the archives there of all the wonderful people who've appeared over the years. Uh, today, I could not be more excited. I'm sitting down to chat with author uh, Catherine Linka. Catherine, how are you today?
1: I'm great. How are you, Rob?
0: I am so excited to talk with you and I really appreciate you uh, making the time to be here this afternoon.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me because I'm I'm honored, you know, when someone gives you their time that's a real gift.
0: Well, we'll see. Don't 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 thank me yet. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Uh, Catherine, uh, probably the best place to start is I'm terrible about summarizing other people's books. In fact, I've spoiled enough books doing this show. I don't even talk about them anymore beyond what the author wants to reveal. Uh, and I'm terrible about summarizing other people's biographies. Um, so if you would just kind of give esteemed audience a little bit of an overview of who you are and where you're at in your uh, writing career thus far. Okay.
1: Um, well, physically right now I'm in L.A. Um, I live in L.A. And. Uh, what I want you to see is my third young adult novel. I have a two-book duology that came out in 2014-2015 called A Girl Called Fearless, which I tell people is like Handmaid's Tale meets Victoria's Secret fashion show. Uh, so <laughs> I've, I've been doing this for a while, Yeah.
0: I love the uh, premise of that one. Uh, But you know what? I'm I'm about to break my own rule and mutilate your your book. Tell tell us, esteemed audience, just a little bit about that book, if you would.
1: About uh, Fearless or about what I want you to see?
0: Uh, Let's start with Fearless, and and we will absolutely cover what I want you to see available in fine bookstores now before we're done. Uh,
1: A Girl Called Fearless is a uh, two-book dystopian series Which is, it's been compared to Handmaid's Tale, but um, it's set in Los Angeles 10 years after synthetic hormones in beef have killed 50 million women between the ages of 12 and 50. So teenage girls are the most valuable and restricted commodity in the country.
0: And I I understand that our protagonist, as we meet here, uh, has uh, been auctioned off to marriage to a man uh, twice her age.
1: Uh, actually she's trying to avoid that
0: right <laughs> so she's
1: she's running for the border of Canada because if you can reach Canada um, you will be given asylum and so I think it's the only YA that actually the second X takes place in a high-end escort service in a penthouse in Las Vegas
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's a market distinction it is. <laughs> Uh, and then something I'm, I'm always curious about when I, I meet authors who, who do this, I uh, saw on your website as I was stalking you relentlessly uh, that you, you've got photos of you hiking and kayaking all around the world. Uh, and I always think, well, writers, aren't you supposed to stay home and write about other people having adventures where it's safe and cozy? But not you. You're out there.
1: I'm, I am travel travels my jam. Um... I grew up hiking in the Sierras and I love going to very stark remote landscapes. And, uh, for me, it's such a, a source of renewal, you know, as writers, we, we talk about doing artist dates where we go out and we sort of re, re, refill ourselves. You know, we have experiences to, um, uh, spark our creativity and and enrich us. And for me, that is going out and and hiking and kayaking and just throwing myself into these really beautiful, bare, evocative landscapes.
0: so where are where are some of the most interesting places that you traveled to?
1: I love Svalbard, which is an archipelago uh, north of Norway. And it's actually the setting for part of the Golden Compass. It's where she meets the Polar Bear King. Uh, I also I love Patagonia. It's the it's so dramatic. Uh, the most beautiful place on earth truly is Antarctica. It is haunting when the when the sun is shining it's so beautiful because the ice is turquoise and you have these incredible shapes and when the when it's cloudy it's this kind of sea green. Everything is is kind of grey, misty and sea green and you feel like you're in another world. It's really amazing.
0: It doesn't terrify you to be out there, where I mean, it's almost like not not quite like as dramatic as being in space, but you're dependent on your equipment. If that goes down, you're you're a goner. Oh, I I am
1: not camping.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I do not camp. I hike, and I don't camp. Just keep moving, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, And then uh, here's a a question I always like to ask folks um, that have a Master of Fine Arts. Um, You've got one from Vermont College, right? Indeed. And I'm forever debating, um, what uh, what do you feel that that uh, MFA has brought to your career? And was it worth both the investment of time and of money?
1: You know, what's really interesting to me uh, is that Often, many, many people that I've met at Vermont came for a very different reason than their career. I came because uh, my dad had just died and I was caring for my mom and my mom was fatally ill. And so writing was my lifeboat and doing my MFA at that point and having to right, and and being able to disappear into uh, another world every day is really what kept me alive through a a, a horrible and and sad period. Now, there were many things that I got out of that experience. Um, I really learned how to look at my work critically. I my, my writing really took off my um, writing partners at that point were so impressed that one of them actually went to Vermont because she saw the progress that I had made in my writing now ironically <laughs> after I graduated uh the books uh, the a couple in my town decided to open a bookstore and I walked in there one day there was Two chairs, two tables, and a computer. That was the only thing that was there. And I said to them, I have a background in marketing, and I have a background in books. And I showed them the hundreds of books that I had read during my MFA, um, the, the, all the children's books that I had read. And I said, if you ever need help with a, you know, your children's department, let me know. And they said, well, can you start Monday? So the,
0: <laughs>
1: clearly, they had no experience in bookselling, or they probably wouldn't have suggested it. But that began my um, eight-year odyssey as a bookseller. And so there were all sorts of things that came out of the experience of going to Vermont, as well as a writing community that is really connected uh the alumni are really supportive of each other and um pretty visible uh if you look at the ala awards which were announced you'll see there's usually a few vermont names in there not mine (laughs) (laughs) not yet i don't i don't really see that happening
0: but um that uh, makes sense to me so... Okay, so there you are. Had, had you wanted to be a writer prior to going to the MFA? When did you realize you were a writer and this was something that was going to be a lifelong passion?
1: Well, I think it always was a lifelong thing. Uh, you know, when I, was in, when I was growing up, I was the kid who painted and drew and who danced and did ceramics and photography and who was on the literary magazine. I was always that creative person and when I went to college <clears throat> uh, I didn't have time to do all of those things but I was still writing fabulously terrible poetry <laughs> and uh, I was brought into a uh, writing workshop that was pretty prestigious at the time with um, a poet named Roland Flint and um I actually had my first poem published in a real poetry journal then. But, you know, then you go to work and life takes over. I, I did, however, always work in businesses or industries that were concerned with uh, words and language. I worked in uh, publishing. I worked in uh, Advertising, marketing. So I was always dealing with how we use words to persuade people, to convince them, and uh, and then one day I started writing a book in secret.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure. Why would working. you want someone to know you wrote a book?
1: <laughs> My husband was working. Horrible, horrible hours. And he had always said he wanted to write a sci-fi story. And I thought, I can't tell him that I'm writing a book while their kids are off in school, right? I, I just can't reveal that I'm doing this because he's working so hard. And one see, day so an act
0: of kindness, I apologize for I, for laughing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> one night, we're lying in bed, and I'm reading a book about falconry. And he turns to me and he says, are we getting a bird?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and that was the point at which I had to come clean. I, I, I mean, it, it <laughs> I could not hide what I was doing any longer.
0: Uh, and you mentioned uh, you had worked in publishing. I want to get back to that bookstore. But what did you do in publishing?
1: Ah, uh, I was a traveling salesman. I was a field sales rep. And I worked in textbook publishing. And my job was to go to, it was to visit every college outside of Philly and Pittsburgh. I was in Pennsylvania. I lived in State College. And I traveled the state talking about introduction to uh, psychology, introduction to econ, uh, English comp, et cetera. So that's what I did.
0: And I assume you had to be pretty knowledgeable about the books themselves to better sell them so that you had to have had a wide breadth of uh, knowledge by the time you were done. Uh, above and beyond, I mean, I, I think that would be above and beyond college because if you're in college, maybe you read the book, maybe you don't, you get the grade, but if you, if your livelihood depends on your knowing what's in the books and being able to sell them, I, I imagine you have a, a mastery beyond that.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, You well, you don't have time to read everything. You know, most... Even today, most field sales reps have read only a fraction of the books that they have to um, sell. You know, you have to know what the book is about. You have to have an understanding of the pedagogy. You have to have an understanding of the competition. Uh, But really, I know no more about, uh, you know, introduction to linguistics (laughs) than I did before (laughs) I did that job.
0: Uh, and then, so let's uh, let's get back to the the bookstore. Eight years, uh, and I assume you're 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 as good as your word. You're you're selling the children's books like nothing they've ever seen. Uh,
1: yes. What
0: was your time like there, and what did that experience bring to your writing?
1: You know, it was great. It was really a uh, great introduction to how publishing works when you look at it through the eyes of a bookseller. You you see the industry, but you're not. In the industry, so you learn so much about the industry. Um, it gives you an opportunity to see what's coming onto the market and to see the trends and to see, like, if you're working on a story, you can see, oh, that's my potential competition. You know, you you expand your learning base so much. And um, as uh, I think you know, I ran a teen advisory board and a tween advisory board so once a month I would get together with my teens and I'd give them advanced copies of the yas that had come in and they'd go off and they'd pick what they wanted they'd read them and they'd come back and we'd talk about them and um <laughs> wow <laughs> they were so candid they they were <laughs> you found out what they hated about
0: <laughs> books that they read. <laughs>
1: Interestingly, okay, the, the worst sin you can commit as a YA writer is to be boring. That is absolutely, they, they, no, nah, you are dead. You're, that book is dead. <laughs> the, the second worst is to be confusing. And I think this is really important for writers to understand that clarity is critical, you want to locate your reader. You want to you get them settled into where you are in a place, where you are in time, who is there, what's going on. If you start with this kind of vague, ambiguous uh, opening to a chapter, you're going to lose them. And it's even more important when you're writing for middle graders because middle graders are emerging readers. They often feel uncertain about their abilities, and if they aren't comfortable, they will blame you as the writer, and they will put down your book, and they won't pick up another one. They want to They want to feel like they have the situation under control. So the more clear we are, for those readers especially, the better off our books will do for them.
0: So what's an example of uh, a vague sort of opening that, that wouldn't appeal to those types of uh, readers at all?
1: Um, I have seen uh, books which start with pronouns, he, blah, 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 blah. You know, you if you can't visualize and you don't know where you are, you, you know, the, um, the forest, well, you know, you don't know the country, you don't know who else is there. It, it's really hard for the reader to grasp and visualize what's going on. There was one book where um, I was doing a, a review of first pages. And it wasn't until I got to the end of the page, that the writer revealed that the person who was the he was a centaur. Now, if I had known at the beginning of the page, that this was a centaur, that would have really excited me as a reader. Instead, I didn't know who this person was. I, I, it was just, and see, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Help the reader see who this is and who to get invested in.
0: If I'm writing, uh, and I, w- I want my reader to know I'm writing about a, a, my character's a centaur, uh, would I say something like my hooves I don't know, made noises on the forest floor? Um, or do I have to specifically flat out state, hi, I'm a centaur?
1: <laughs> well, I think you, first off, I think you want to question which, uh, whether to be in first person or third person. Sure. Um, you know, it, it, oftentimes YA is first person. But in the case of a centaur, I might be really tempted to go third person. And I think it's, <sighs> You know, it's not bad that Harry Potter is third person, right? You know, that's that's very helpful.
0: Well, really, I mean, I, I think we should all just write Harry Potter every time, and then <laughs> there's not going to be an issue. Well,
1: I think I see a little Hagrid above your head.
0: Oh, yeah! For those of you uh, watching on YouTube, we've got the uh, Harry Potter figures on top. I uh, used to have, uh, I used to stand in front of a, my shelf of Batman toys, uh, action figures. Forgive me. <laughs> um, I've got uh, over a thousand of them uh, around the house. And I've got a, a shelf display. Uh, and it finally just it hit me that, hey, dummy, your show is about books. Stand in front of books. <laughs> <laughs> Save the, the Batman photos for your blog. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I wanted to... Uh, follow that up with, what did I want to follow? Something important. Oh, uh, you were talking about how that strengthened your knowledge of the market. And I've got to say, that is absolutely borne out. This this astounded me when I read it, uh, that you spent five years researching literary agents, but then you wrote two when they both made offers. Do I have that tale correct?
1: Yes. Um, when I started, I was I was writing, but I really wasn't in a position to go after an agent. I was working on a book. I didn't feel the book was commercial. Uh, It felt very, very personal. And, And it was not a good time with everything going on with my family. So I took five years where I would go to conferences, I would listen to the literary agents, and I would pretty much size them up. Uh, you know, a literary agent is someone you're going into business with, and it's really good to look at them and go, "Okay, would I want to work with you? If we were if we were in a company together, would I want to work with you? Are you someone who I feel I could trust? Are you someone who is articulate? Are you someone who I think could represent my my novel well?" Uh, at the same time I was watching, uh, who was doing deals. I was watching PW and, and looking at who was doing deals and who was doing interesting deals, who was doing deals for books that, um, were similar to what I like to write. And I, I talk about this sometimes with my, uh, SCBWI friends where I'll say, you know, you want to find an agent who loves to sell what you love to write? Because agents are human beings, and they all have their favorites. If you have an agent who doesn't like horror and you're writing horror, they probably aren't going to know the editors who love to uh, who love to uh, buy horror. You know, you have to think of agents as people who have. A limited number of connections. They may have a lot of connections, but you want them to have the right connections for your book. So I think I did a pretty good job of sizing up the agents who would respond to uh, a girl called Fearless, and I was right.
0: Obviously, without uh, esteemed audience <laughs> knows that I think all literary agents are wonderful, and they are all welcome to come on the show. I can't wait to talk <laughs> with you, um, but. Uh, beyond what we can read on the page, you know, they're selling a lot. And uh, this is a debate I, I, I don't have a good answer to. Uh, if somebody sells a lot of books, but they're just an absolute uh, whore of a person that's unpleasant to talk to, and, and I've, I've, I've met a few, not on this show, God knows, never on the show or the blog, but it, out and about, people I don't invite uh to to come chat with me and i meet them like oh, oh my god i i couldn't stand more than a couple of moments for you on the other hand i'm seeing a lot of sales That <laughs> that looks pretty good so if you're meeting somebody in person beyond just what the the numbers are for what they've done without without revealing any names without um any specifics how would you go about determining in person um things to rule out uh and and who's going to be a good agent to, to, to follow up with?
1: Well, you know the kidlit community is pretty is pretty cozy, and it's uh, not unusual for one uh, to have friends who are represented by agents. And so, if you have a question about an agent, you may know someone. Who will give you a very candid answer about what they like or don't like about their agent? So use, you know, use your connections. If you don't have an opportunity to see them speak or to meet them in person, use your connection. And before you sign anything, um, I would say have a have a back and forth about. Um, questions you might have about how they might handle things. The way that someone responds to you in an email exchange can tell you a lot about that person. So I would say use all of the resources available to you for um, for finding out what they're really like.
0: Well, now I'm on pins and needles because we have had email exchanges. I, I hope they went well. <laughs> what, uh, <laughs> they did what go well. What specific kinds of things are you looking for in an email exchange that might uh, tip somebody off?
1: If you ask a question and you don't get an answer which really answers your question, that would be that would tip you off. If someone is vague or if they're brusque or. Um, if you if you'd come away not feeling comfortable, listen to your gut. Don't be so eager that you leap into a relationship. And it's hard because, you know, for many of us, that is one of those moments where it's like your dream has come true, right? It's taken forever. You have so much invested in this. You want to be published so deeply. But... It's a it's a good time to just step back and listen to your intuitive self. Don't just don't just run into that <laughs>
0: Yes, but my intuitive self is garbage, which is why I love asking these specific questions. <laughs> That'll be able to help out later. <laughs> I've listened to my gut before; it's been wrong. <laughs> I've learned to, to to listen, but also find find some hard factual information <laughs> to help me out as well. <laughs> Facts are good. I've got a lot more questions for you because I know you also mentor uh, mentor uh, young adult authors and I've got some questions for you about marketing, all kinds of fun stuff we're going to talk to. Uh, but by God, before we before we get to any of that, let's talk about what I want you to see. Again, available now, esteemed audience, wherever fine books are sold. So because I'm terrible about summarizing other people's books, I'll, I'll tell you my summary. That's not what I wrote. But what, what book did you read? Uh, why don't you tell the esteemed audience a little bit about what I want you to see?
1: Uh, What I want you to see is the story of Sabine. Sabine is a first-year student at an art institute in uh, Southern California. She is an incredibly talented painter who has won this very, very prestigious scholarship. And so she's thrilled to be at Kalinva, the California Institute for the Visual Arts, And one of the things that nobody knows is that this scholarship, not only does it cover her tuition, her supplies, et cetera, but it gives her a stipend, which allows her to rent a cozy room in a woman's house. No one knows that she had spent the six months prior to coming to Kalenba, she had spent that time sleeping in her car following the death of her mom and the loss of their apartment. So the scholarship means everything to her. It is her future. It is her. Um, it is being able to learn and express herself and become the artist she wants to be. And it really is a means to her very survival. The problem is that she's been at the school for six weeks and. Her painting instructor, Colin Krell, who is also the head of the painting department, hates her work. He is savage in his criticisms of her work in class, and she is terrified that she is going to lose her scholarship. Like many of us, when we are lost and afraid, she makes a series of not so great choices. And those choices eventually lead to her being put in a position where she is wrapped up in a crime that she didn't intend to commit. And how is she, how is she going to survive that? How is she going to get out of the situation she's in? So that's the story.
0: Oh, you are a bookseller. That was fantastic. You told me the character, what's at stake, what she wants. Oh, that's fantastic. You gave a great description of the villain. <laughs> well, villain-ish. <laughs> you've got this down, ma'am. You don't need me to tell you that, but you got it. That's fantastic. <laughs> so uh, I was shocked in, in, in reading the supplemental material for your uh, book to learn that one in seven college students uh, is homeless. Uh, and I, it's America, you know, we only care about 1% of our population. Um, but how did you become aware of the, of the homeless population and what attracted you to want to write about this?
1: You know, it, it, it's funny because it all... I think part of what I find in my writing is that it usually comes out as something that I love, like art, and I'm fascinated with art crime. But a lot of times my writing also has this, uh, it comes from something that's bothering me. I live in L.A. uh, Right now, there are an estimated 60,000 people in Los Angeles County who are experiencing homelessness. You can't, you know, you can't drive through L.A. without seeing tents. I was uh, walking my dog around a reservoir in a trendy neighborhood. And I started noticing RVs parked along the road. And they weren't, it wasn't like, oh, the cousins are visiting Aunt Sadie. These were RVs, which were, people were living in them. And as I was exploring my character of Sabine, you know, and I was thinking about why would she be so desperate? What would cause her desperation? I realized I had to strip her of everything. When I began looking at homelessness among college students, I was totally shocked. You know, you know, you talked about being shocked by the numbers. I don't think we really have a perfect... Uh, Number for how many people are affected? We um, the number one in seven comes from a uh, research study which was done by the Hope Center out of Temple University, which looks at homelessness among uh, college students. They had done a large scale survey of students who were in the California community college system. Now, there are 2.1 million students, and they had surveys from 40,000 of them. So that's a very large-scale survey. And they found that one in seven were experiencing homelessness, and a much more significant number were experiencing housing insecurity, which is when you, you aren't sure you can make your rent. You made your rent this month, but you didn't really eat. Or you made your rent, but you couldn't pay your utility bill. Or, you know, your your housing insecurity and food insecurity go hand in hand. And so I had no idea before I got into this and before I really started looking at the numbers that this is not just a problem in community colleges, this is a problem in two-year schools, in four-year schools. It's a problem, uh, <clears throat> definitely a problem in California um, and in other parts of the country. But it's it's worsened here because um, the lack of affordable housing in California is driving um, almost like a second wave of homelessness. And so... That, that's what we've got that we're dealing with right now.
0: So something like that, um, a, while, a few questions. Um, let's start with when you're just looking at that topic from the outside, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to art also, I promise this team audience, but I want to talk about this <laughs> a little bit first. Um, when you're looking at this project from the outside, it, it must seem so unbelievably huge and daunting uh, to try to tackle even a, a piece of it for a book. So how do you, uh, well, how do you do research to make sure that what you're reporting is accurate, and then how do you decide out of all those stories that you could tell about uh, homelessness and, and college students that Sabine's the story we want? And we, I mean, it's Sabine's story. It's not like here's the the stand-in for all homeless teens. This is one homeless teen. Uh, but at the same time, you do want to make sure that you hit some of these um, most relevant uh, things that you're finding in your research. So how do you winnow that down to something you can address in a story? And how do you do your research to make sure that you're accurate?
1: Good questions. Um, First, my story is very much Sabine's story. And I'm not trying to tell, you know, this isn't a term paper. I don't have to cover all of the experiences of everyone who is experiencing this. So I really had to look at it from... What had happened to Sabine, um, we don't spend a lot of time in the book, as you know, presenting her as someone uh, during a period of homelessness. You see Sabine's experiences uh, in the past through the sketches where... um, She looks at a sketch she had drawn in the past year, and she talks about the memories of what happened to her. Um, Really, what we are seeing in what I want you to see is the aftermath. Um, What the experience has, um, how it has affected her today. And one of the most important things that I was concerned about was representing uh, someone who, I'm trying to get this exactly right. I think it's really important when you talk to people who, um, or you read about, um, you read interviews with uh, students who are experiencing homelessness, it's really important to understand that they do not want to be seen as different. They don't want to be seen as damaged because, you know, there's so many stigmas that are associated with this and they want to be seen as people. They want to be seen through their, um, through their personalities. They, they don't want to be labeled. And that is a very important message that I want to come through because Sabine says again and again, I don't want to be labeled. I don't want to be called that homeless artist. I want to be recognized for my talents and my abilities. And I think that is the most important thing that I'm saying about homelessness among college students is look at the person. Look at them. Don't get so attached to all of these assumptions about what they are like or what their life has been like look at them
0: okay <laughs> and of course uh, sabine is showing us <laughs> what she wants us to see <laughs> <She> <laughs> i'm dies. clever i figured it out oh my gosh yeah. <laughs> break my hand pat myself on the back so let's uh let's talk research though how, how do you go about i'm assuming that you didn't spend <laughs> did you spend a few nights on the street? trying that
1: (laughs) (laughs) out. No, I, and, and as you know, if you read my book, um, I don't show scenes of sleeping on the street. The book is very much, um, set in the present day. Uh, that wasn't the story that I wanted to tell. I have a number of friends who, uh, work with, um, people who are experiencing homelessness and, um, they were terrific resources. Uh, I also have a young friend who lived in a shelter when she was in high school, and she was a fabulous resource for me as well. And she was um, someone who really was a great role model because she she reminds me of Sabine, you know, where, where her... She has tremendous talent and a sense of self. And, you know, there's so many assumptions that people make about, oh, you know, aren't I, I had more than one conversation with uh, my editors about, did, does Sabine feel shame? Is she ashamed? Does she feel shame for being homeless? And uh, I really had to defend that because my, uh, my position was she didn't cause her homelessness. It's not her identity. She, didn't do, she doesn't think she's bad or wrong. She's angry. She's angry and she's lost because what she really lost was her mom.
0: When you start a story, do you come at it with uh, from a perspective of let me start with my character and then build the story? Or do you start with here's the plot, here's the idea for the story, who's the best character for this?
1: Uh, if I began with the plot, I would be so bored I would never write it. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay. I would feel like I had already, you know, solved all the pro- problems and... I always begin with a character and a problem, and that's where I begin, and that's and then I start adding in the other characters, and then I let it unfold. You know, I, I am telling myself the story as I go along, and believe me, there are some wrong turns along the way that get edited out
0: are you uh plotting ahead of time and keeping some kind of plan or are you a, a pantser just kind of going as you see it or some combination thereof
1: i am definitely a combo i am not a i i will not plot out what i do is i uh keep a table of uh, as i work so every chapter i note you know uh What's, what happens in the chapter, what the goal is of the character at that point, uh, who else is in the chapter, where it takes place physically, what's going on with them emotionally, and that's sort of my running tally to let me know where I am. Uh, if there's someone key in the story that I haven't seen for a few chapters, I'll say to myself, wow, you need to get back to so-and-so, or you, you're... You know, you're veering off course here, so you need to get back to the central problem, which is driving the story. Uh, and then, of course, then you have to go back and go, okay, what's irrelevant? <laughs> what did I write in this book that was completely irrelevant? Or what's coming out? Or what, uh, what haven't I developed enough? Uh, and my table helps me say, okay, I've seen people who do those charts. The, you know sure. that I, I cannot do this to save my life
0: <laughs> yeah the, I'm trying to solve a conspiracy theory and here's my mind showing on the wall <laughs> no way no way yeah I don't uh, I don't do that either I do do uh, some plotting uh, and I usually know my ending uh, because I figure if I have a destination in mind then I at least know more or less I'm heading north uh, so we can figure this out one way or another, and then we'll stop along the way and see see what's yeah. available. But then sometimes the characters talk me out of my ending, which even better.
1: That's the best, you know, because you want it. You want the ending that's appropriate for that character.
0: So when uh, do you find that a character likes it being comes to life for you? Is it early in the process? Is it after you've been writing them for a while? When do you feel like yes, I've got this person?
1: Wow. Um I wish it was early in the pro- <laughs> that things so easy. <laughs> <in the process. laughs> yeah, I think through the process of writing, that's when I really start to understand that character. When I see how the character reacts with other characters, that really tells me a lot about who that person is. And I try and as I'm writing scenes, and she's interacting with other characters, I try just to see, to let her go and to say what she wants to say and to not try and put her in a box. Uh, And that's when I learn a lot about who, who that character is.
0: I promised a esteemed audience we'd, we'd pivot back to art and I try never to break a promise to a esteemed audience. Um, so what, uh, what drew, what, what made the art world, uh, and, and, and specifically the, the college art world, uh, the setting that would be best for Sabine and what kind of research did you do to faithfully write about that? Oh,
1: um, Wow. Why? So. So. Why did I choose a college art world instead of uh, high school?
0: No, just, just <laughs> art world uh, in general. High school, college. Uh, when my initial uh, reading. Uh, a, th- a thought that occurred to me is, um, not Sabine, uh, having experienced this, and this is my assumption. Uh, and I assume you, you explored it, challenged it, shot it down and said, Nope, I'm doing it my way because you did. Um, uh, but my assumption was, well, if, if this is your background, you've had this experience, uh, I'm, I, you know, I'm Scarlett O'Hara. I've got my, my hand up. I'll, God is my witness. I'll never go hungry again. Uh, I'm gonna, um, I'm going to go to medical school. Let's, let's, to heck with art, to heck with writing. Let's find, (laughs) let's find the job that pays. Yeah, I can,
1: I can understand that. But I, I think one thing which is very true about creative people is we have to create, it's not an option for us. And Sabine's art is a central, it's it's a core part of her identity. She can't, I mean, she could go and be a dental hygienist and do that during the day, but she would be, she would be, uh, I think she would feel so much more lost. Art really held her together. That was what kept her alive, kept her sane. It's so crucial to who she is. It's not... She would not feel that she was living if she was working a normal day-to-day job. She has to do this. She has no other option, really. Um, Now, you asked about how I learned about the art world.
0: Sure, my questions are long and rambling and (laughs) usually have at least three hidden in them. (laughs) How did you learn about the art world?
1: (laughs) Well, the funny thing was that I had started, when I started to think about writing about art, I had decided I would spend a year learning whatever I wanted to about contemporary art because even though I loved art and loved art history and love art crime, I really didn't know much about contemporary art. And yet I'm in one of the most important centers for contemporary art in the US, right? We have so much art here. So I thought, okay, this is my chance to do this project. And even if I don't get a book out of it, I'll have had an amazing year. So it oh, was a
0: wonderful attitude to take.
1: <laughs> well, you never know if you're gonna sell a book, right? You 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 never know. So why well, not? I never
0: do, I assume you do. <laughs> no. You convince me that you do. <laughs> no, not at
1: all. Um so as I began uh, researching, I was reading interviews with artists and I was reading the work of art critics and art magazines and uh, I was reading the economics of the contemporary art market and sociological studies on the art world. Uh, and the, so, the
0: artist hearts on fire. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, was, it was great. and, and tons about uh, art theft and art uh, fraud, looting uh, forgery. I mean, the, the really fun, fun, fun stuff. Uh, <laughs> and fortunately, I also had friends who had gone to, uh, one of the big, um, well-known, uh, art schools in, a, in Southern California. So I could call on them, uh, when I needed, uh, help with something.
0: Oh, that's perfect. You got uh... it. Yeah. Sounds like you've got resources for just about everything, and your uh, in the relationships you've built up over the over time. That's a fascinating skill. When I find a writer who has that, because uh, one, I, I don't. <laughs> I appear extroverted here every week, esteemed yeah. audience. Talking, I'm not. Uh, I prefer my office where it's nice and quiet, yeah. and, uh, and a Friday night with my son and my wife. That's that's perfect. <laughs> uh, other but than now you
1: friend. have all of these connections. You know, with all the interviews you've done, you have all sorts of connections.
0: Oh, that's true. Uh, But you must, do you find that you have an an extrovert part of your personality that gets you out there and and gets you, uh, I assume you're interested in people since you're a writer, but uh, do you routinely put yourself out there to create new relationships?
1: I am uh, actually surprisingly shy. (laughs) And I tend to be... Um, introverted. But when it comes to writing and authors, and, uh, you know, reaching out to aspiring authors, or um, reaching out to, you know, like, like, support my fellow authors, that's when I really come out of my shell, or or speaking to groups, when I think I have something that I can share with them that can help them. That's when I come out of my shell.
0: So this is uh, something else I, I noted about you. You do a number of speaking appearances. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know for what's the old joke that uh, most people would rather be in the coffin than delivering the eulogy. <laughs> um, which, uh, I, who was it? I can't remember who I heard. I'm always remembering things that I learned, but not where I got it. Um, but I had read uh, um, uh, a um, evolutionary psychologist, uh, who believed his theory, I, I, I don't know how you test this, but his theory was that part of why people are so terrified of public speaking is that for all of human history, if you were in front of a crowd, that might be it. <laughs> this, this might be the end for you. So it would be a wise <laughs> thing to be afraid of. <laughs> so how, uh, how are you overcoming, you say you're shy, uh, how do you overcome that and put yourself out there uh, and do things like be on the podcast today, go out and address large groups? How how what's 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 your secret? How are you pulling that off? Uh When I have a job
1: to do, I go do it. It's it. I it, it, I'm in a different mode. I think it's very different to go and talk in front of a group versus having to go up to someone that you don't know very well at like a little party. For me, that is really terrifying that's that but speaking in front of a hundred people easy peasy
0: (laughs) (laughs) what do you think that is
1: (laughs) i don't know i don't know
0: fascinating let me uh i've got a number of questions i'm watching our time here and it's just it's flying right by it always does uh steam audience won't forgive me if i don't ask you catherine linka have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them
1: Okay, you have to understand, I live with a sci-fi fan.
0: Lean in forward, go on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which means that even though I have never seen one, I do not deny the possibility that they exist. And the universe is so big. How could we be alone, really? How could that be possible? So,
0: there you go. Oh, is that the, is it the Fermi paradox uh, that a uh, well, uh, civilization gets so large that they destroy themselves? <laughs> so that's why we're not bumping into it. Hope not. <laughs> Pretty grim way to see the universe. I agree. I would love to see a flying saucer. It's on my bucket list uh, before I check out. Um so let's see some other questions I want to ask you about your experience uh, specifically with writing. I want to circle back to mentoring aspiring novelists. Uh, what's that process like? And also, what are you telling them? What are you wishing more aspiring novelists knew?
1: I I think everybody who well, first off, it, the process has been really accidental. It's um. I even though I have done it formally with. SCBWI where I was, um, I was like, I was, I was awarded to someone as a mentor (laughs) and they were (laughs) great. They were, they were great. Cheryl Manning and has this wonderful, wonderful story, which I absolutely loved. And I was so excited to work with her on it. Um, but I think what has happened is that I I reach out to people or people reach out to me for advice. And when I am impressed with someone's writing and I see them asking for help, I do want to help them. And, um, granted I am not, uh, you know, I don't have like a PhD in creative writing, but I've, I've learned a few things. And, uh, so, um, yeah I want to I want to give back because so many people gave back to me while I was uh, starting out. It means a lot to me to do that.
0: yeah I'm gonna ask uh, a little bit facetiously uh, because I'm about to start another uh, fiction workshop this very weekend uh, and and, and uh, hopefully provide folks with some information that'll be valuable. We'll see um, but um, given that you are writing your own books I assume you've always got another project going at some level of uh, completion um and those must take you a lot of time I don't know how much how long did it take you to write what I want you to see
1: um a year a, a year and a half before we sold it and then we went through another nine months of really digging in to refine. So two and a half years, not including all the research. I'm a tortoise.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm gonna circle back and finish the question I started to ask, but what does your writing day look like? What's your process for uh, bringing a book to completion?
1: Wow. Uh, I'm a morning writer. I'm most creative uh, in the morning, but you know, if you're busy, you write whenever you need to. Uh, you know, you just get the job done. Um, I uh, I like to I'll write a scene, I'll write it in bare bones. Uh, sometimes I'll just start with dialogue because that's what I'm hearing in my head. And then I'll layer it more with setting. I'll layer it more with gesture, with dialogue. I'll go in and I'll say, okay, what are you really trying to say in this particular scene? You've, you've written this scene, but where? what is it you want to get out of it? You know, And, and really layer, 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 extract, extract, extract. That's what I do.
0: So... How many drafts on average are we talking?
1: I have no idea because <laughs> you know, be, I, may, I may do I may write a scene for an entire week over and over and over and over. And then then when I go back and revise, I'll revise over and over and over and over. This is why it takes me so <laughs> so long.
0: <laughs> so you're not writing just through, there's the whole first draft. It's, uh, it's edly, but it's on the page. It's every chapter inch by inch. Let's rewrite. Let's make this thing as polished as we can get it. And then once you're done, do you, you I mean, I'm assuming you're still having to go through and, uh, Fix any story incongruencies, or, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe you're taking divine dictation. And this is just a, a me problem, <laughs> but I assume
1: not at all. I mean, I will write up to a certain point, and then I'll go back and rewrite. You know, so I'm rewriting each scene. I may rewrite a series of chapters and then move on. I may get to a first draft and then go back and completely redo it. I'm just constantly, constantly refining. So I could not possibly tell you (laughs) how many times.
0: Fair enough. Uh, and all of that uh, to finish my original question because I wanted to get some sense of what is your verdict. I know you've got a lot going on. You you've got speaking gigs, you've got wonderful podcasts to appear on, and then you've got your your book. So mentoring, I, I imagine, takes time. What is it that you're? I I know that you wanna you wanna help people, and you may be purely altruistic, but I'm I'm also guessing there must be something that mentoring young adult writers. Give us back to you. So what are you taking away from the experience of making time to do this?
1: Well, I think that one of the things which I get out of it is whenever I'm looking at someone's manuscript, whenever I'm working on it with them, I'm always trying to figure out why something doesn't work. You know, when you're looking at um, a developing manuscript, you can see holes, or you can see things that they don't even realize they should develop. I, I, I think of those as like hidden treasures, things that people put into stories that are such opportunities for them to really take that story to the next level if they explore that. I learn so much from the act of trying to figure out what makes or is keeping their story from working and that's what i get out of it um and there's also uh that that wonderful interaction with someone uh you know working on a story and uh it's a much more intimate experience than uh Being a classroom teacher, I'm sure I, and not, I am not dissing classroom teachers. I'm just saying that you are. (laughs) You heard
0: her teachers, Catherine Linka says you're all garbage. (laughs) No, 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 no.
1: I just realized (laughs) that I could, I don't enjoy teaching like a a class. So a, 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 a class where you're doing something for several weeks I've done a few of them, and I don't really enjoy that. But what I do enjoy is working with someone intimately on a project. That's that's what I uh, find most satisfying.
0: And you yourself uh, sound like an excellent teacher, and you appreciate fine teachers everywhere, of course. Um, (laughs) Yes. uh, (laughs) But uh, you mentioned hidden treasures, and I think I know what you mean, but... What's an example of a hidden treasure you might find and develop?
1: Uh, sometimes there will be uh, an an object, an object which has uh, a special meaning for a character, and and really you can use it to develop a theme. You can use it to reflect a connection. Uh, and and the writer just hasn't like figured that. Out. I I remember one uh, story where um, it was a French it was a French horn. This was in a, a writing uh, retreat, and the uh, the main character wanted to uh, do a concert for her in, in memory of her grandfather, and she played the. French horn. And yet the the writer hadn't yet made that French horn central to this concert, which was going to be the goal of the protagonist. So that was an opportunity to really build that, uh, to build that even stronger than it was before.
0: Absolutely sounds like a note I would get from my critique group. I hate dummy. <laughs> <laughs> you know your novel works this way right why wouldn't you work oh yeah I'm glad you told me I would have <laughs> I would have missed it
1: <laughs> we do we miss things because we're so close and so it's great to have a critique group be able to point those things out
0: so who finds those things for you <sighs>
1: um I would say I, I'm really fortunate that I have um, wonderful beta readers. You know, that's part of uh, the the joys of being uh, at this point in my career, where I have um, other really well established uh, writers that I can call on for help. Um, so, and it depends on what you know, what help I, I need actually.
0: Um, Fair enough. Catherine, we are barreling right toward the end here. It comes so fast. uh, So I've got to come up with about maybe two more brilliant questions. Um, And, uh, and, and forgive me for all the the things that I'm going to miss. Although uh, you had mentioned that you participated in over what, 300 hours of critique groups. I I think it says on your website. Yeah. Um, So out of all that experience with critique groups, what can you tell a uh, esteemed audience about getting a uh, successful critique group together and making sure you're in one? Then I'll ask you about marketing and we'll wrap it up. Fair enough.
1: All right. That's great. Um, I think, you know, I've done all different kinds of critique groups. And I think one of the most important things is that uh, it's, it's OK to leave a critique group. You know, you want to be in a group where everyone comes, everyone shows their their work, everyone gets critiqued. What you don't want is to be in a group where three people show up to critique your stuff, but they never show their work. You don't, You know, that's a very uneven situation and not one you want to be in. And so if the group isn't working for you, It's okay to walk away. You have permission to do that. I think it's also really important to set up the rules in advance. Um, It's important that everybody coming into a critique group understand that they're there to talk about what is or is not working in the piece. They are not there to judge the piece or to talk about its commercial viability or whether or not it can get published. Their job is to look at the piece and say, you know, this is what I find confusing. This is what's exciting me. This is where the piece is slowing down. This is what doesn't seem to be connected with the rest of the story that, you know, we've been reading. Um, That's what their job is to do. You know, set out your rules. Uh, You want a critique group to be a place of trust uh, a place of honesty um, and a place where people feel safe to come and, and talk about their work. Uh, so that, that's, that's my recommendation.
0: Makes perfect sense to me. I'm going to sneak in a quick follow up on that. Uh, if uh, somebody, uh, if, if, if you don't want people talking about, is this right for the market? What's the viability? How likely mm-hmm. is that So Who would you have that conversation with? Or would it just be straight to your agent and have that conversation with, uh, with them?
1: Oh, I guess I've always had the advantage of, um, being able to, you know, to, to, I, I, you know, as a bookseller, I was able to talk to publishers, reps about that. Um, but it's hard, it's hard to know, uh, in advance. Um, I don't think I, I don't I don't think I have a coherent answer to that question.
0: Fair enough. Uh, for the record, if you and I get in a critique group together with your level of experience of the market, absolutely, I want your opinion on whether or not my story is marketable, and then I want you to write my description because you've got it down. <laughs> Things gonna fly off shelves. Uh, okay, so uh, we'll talk about uh, marketing then, and uh, I'll ask you my catch-all question, and we'll we'll call it a day. Um, but what uh, have you found to be the most successful methods of um, marketing? And also, how, what has your experience been working with our previous guest, one of my most favorite publicist, Megan Baby?
1: Okay. I love Megan. Megan is fabulous. She's so smart and inventive and energetic and optimistic, and I just absolutely adore her. And she might really be my best marketing, uh, investment. Um, it's very, very hard to break out in uh YA because the market is very crowded. A lot of books come out and the way that books are publicized is shifting, you know, uh, if you look at the impact of social media and you look at what's happening with print media and if you, everything that used to be true about marketing books is not, uh, is in flux. And I, and so you really need to uh, have someone on your side who is helping you navigate these waters uh, as a, solo, uh, author, you can only do so much. You, uh, you know, you're, unless you're like the cousin of Kim Kardashian, I really kind of wish I was the cousin of Kim (laughs) Kardashian.
0: Who doesn't? Sure. Uh,
1: but, um, so I think you do what you can. You establish a media presence, which is comfortable for you. Um, I like being on Instagram because it allows me to visually show parts of my life and parts of my personality. Um, I don't really want to get into the kind of political conversations, which are on Twitter. So
0: they're so productive and helpful. Why would you want to skip them? (laughs) It's, it's,
1: it's not really my deal. Um, and that'll
0: be I my, also, that'll be my uh, regret on my deathbed. I wish I'd sent one more angry tweet. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Um, but I think it's important to find the social media outlet. I think it's important that works for you also to build your community. Um, you want your community around you and, um, n- making sure that you have someone who's going to show up at that book launch is really, really important. Um, And I think it also, um, I think one of the single most important things that you can do is to write your elevator pitch and to really get that right, because you just never know um, who you're going to run into. uh, And, that gives you the opportunity to talk about your book in a very compact and direct way. And and I think that is really, really important because that feeds directly into how the publisher is going to talk about your book. And, uh, you know, the It feeds into how your book will be presented on the electronic catalogs that are available for book buyers to use. Um, So that's that's probably the most important thing that any writer can do is really get that one or two sentence summary of their book and get that right.
0: Makes all the sense in the world uh i always uh in these wonderful conversations with a question that is my catch-all for anything i i could have learned from you but i was just too stupid to ask the question um what uh if there was one or two things that you could go back and you could tell yourself when you began your writing journey that would have made things much easier for you what would you go back and tell yourself
1: wow um I think I would tell myself, you're going to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Fair enough. laughs> Good surprises, though, mostly, right?
1: There, there, You know, publishing is a very up and down journey. It's There are parts of it which are just incredible and amazing and fun and thrilling. And then there are parts of it which are... Just anxiety producing and hard. Um, and um and you just never know how it's you never know how it's going to turn out. So, um, enjoy the ride. Enjoy every minute of it. don't don't wait to celebrate. Celebrate at every point. Celebrate when someone asks you for a full instead of a partial manuscript. Celebrate when you've had a good, positive response from an agent celebrate when you get an agent celebrate when you see your cover celebrate at every single moment because um, there's no point in waiting uh, to see whether or not your book becomes a bestseller just enjoy every step along the way
0: Nope, only when I've reached the top of the mountain while I look down from it and finally savor her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely excellent advice. Uh, Catherine, where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, buy all your books, learn more about you, all that good stuff? Um,
1: My books are available on Amazon, barnesandnibble.com, IndieBound. I love it if you support uh, independent booksellers uh, through IndieBound. Um, you can find me on catherinelinka.com That's my website. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at CBlinka. You can find me on Instagram uh, at Katherine and on Facebook, Katherine Linka Author.
0: Uh, and as always, esteemed audience, you can find me at middlegrade You know who I am. Download your copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Go ahead and get ready for the Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy coming May 15th. Uh, And that's it for me. Catherine, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, making the time today and for being such an excellent guest.
1: Rob, thank you so much for this fun conversation. And uh, it's been a joy. Thank you so much. And best of luck with the, the bees and the alligators and flying saucers. May, may you see a flying saucer soon.
0: Fingers crossed. <laughs> your, your, your lips to aliens' ears. Let's do this. <laughs> <gasps> uh, Catherine, I always ask our guests to sign us off because I've learned that uh, professional-type podcasts have sign-off phrases. Uh, and ours justifies the name of the show. And the sign-off phrase is, hi-ya, and what have you. Will you sign us off?
1: Hiya, what have you?